The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. You know, before I say anything, I want to say a special thanks to the committee um, for having me here tonight and for attracting this terrific audience uh, full of familiar faces, people who know China very well, and but also really for uh, what has been a number of years of friendship. We've seen each other in Beijing and in many places, and uh, you've been at the center of the kind of conversation that we're having tonight, which is about how to understand China and what does it mean for us in the United States. And so for that, I'm grateful, and I, and I thank you for, the, uh, for your efforts. Um, when we're talking about China and what it means to be there at this point in history, I think it's useful to remember the words of a terrific China hand, one of the great Sinologists in the United States, John King Fairbank, who described it. He said, China is a journalist's dream and a statistician's nightmare because, he explained, it has more human drama and fewer verifiable facts per square mile than any other country in the world. I'd say I, I mentioned that once to the fact-checking department at the New Yorker. They didn't find that funny at all. Um, I can report to you that much of that statement remains true today as when he said it in 1947. Uh, but today the challenge is getting your arms around it. I think all of us here in one form or another, whether we're on the ground in China or analyzing it from far away, have confronted the problem of proportions. Wherever you fix your lens, you can, com you, can, uh, you can assemble compelling evidence to support a hypothesis. And so it takes, in effect, a responsible sense of judgment about, does this actually reflect the country as I understand it? And that's the challenge that I've tried to undertake in this book and, um, and that I'll talk about tonight. Um, if I can, I just want to start by reading a little bit from the first page of the book. I think it frames the way that I see China, and it'll frame a bit of some of the concepts that I'm thinking about. Whenever a new idea sweeps across China, a new fashion, a philosophy, a way of life, the Chinese describe it as a fever. In the first years after the country opened to the world, people contracted Western business suit fever and Jean-Paul Sartre fever and private telephone fever. It was difficult to predict when or where a fever would ignite or what it would leave behind. In the village of Xiajia, population 1,564, there was a fever for the American cop show, Hunter, better known in Chinese as expert detective Hung Tu. When the show appeared on Chinese television in 1990, the villagers of Xiajia started to gather to watch Detective Rick Hunter of the Los Angeles Police Department go undercover with his partner, Detective Didi McCall. And the villagers of Xiajia came to expect that Detective Rick Hunter would always find at least two occasions to utter his trademark phrase, works for me, though in Chinese he came across as a religious man because works for me had been mistranslated as whatever God wants. The fever passed from one person to the next, and it affected each in a different way. Some months later, when the police in Xiajia tried to search the home of a local farmer, he told them to come back when they had a warrant, a word that he had learned from expert detective Hung Tu. So why would I start a book on contemporary China with a discussion of a single village in the countryside 25 years ago? And 
that's because this is a book about a way of seeing the country, a way of looking at it. And, you know, I think certainly the China that I had studied in the United States beginning in the mid-90s was rendered for me in broad strokes. I mean, there was wonderful reporting, but by and large, the country that I engaged was described in these grand, in these grand, these grand proclamations about politics and economics, about one-fifth of humanity, about what was going to be the world's second largest economy. But actually, the China that I encountered when I got there was something different. It was, it was really alive on the most intimate level, and it was about these small perceptual changes in people's lives. And that's the China that I engaged. That's the China that I felt was missing from my own understanding of the place. So when I talk about the age of ambition, what am I talking? I'm talking about something very specific. And I'm referring to two kinds of ambition. On the one hand, there's the ambition that I think we can see from over here very clearly, which is the ambition to, on a national collective basis, to resume the position in the world that China has had for most of its, of most of its history, most of its life. That's a position as a great power in the world. But then there's the other ambition, and that is the force of 1.4 billion Chinese people and their individual aspirations, which are today more distinct and potent in ways than they have ever been before. And my hope is that by understanding this force, the force of ambition, that it will help us understand and decode some of the choices that China, is, that China and Chinese people are making, both in their policy at home and policy abroad. And that will also help us understand some of the tensions that are developing inside the country and in China's relationship with the rest of the world. I'm not going to go through a rote description, uh, which I think a lot of us here already know about what China has done over the course of the last generation. Suffice to say, it's a country that has gone from, uh, in 1978, having a per capita income of about $200 a year to where it is today, which is about $6,000 a year. You know, but I actually like to think of it in terms of more intimate, more specific changes. People today eat six times as much meat as they did in 1976, for instance. The China that I encountered in the 90s, I should say, was a very different place. I mean, this was when I went to Beijing in 1996 for the first time. I remember, and Steve's probably been there, but the nicest building in town, the place where you went when you really wanted to splurge, was the Jenghua Hotel, which the architect at the time proudly described as a perfect replica of a Holiday Inn that he had seen in Palo Alto, California. Because it was. It was. It was. And... Uh, I went looking for that Holiday Inn, I should say. Um, China today is home to 40% of the skyscrapers under construction in the world, and the, Pal and the uh, Jenghua Hotel is not quite what it once was. So what is this national ambition that I'm talking about? Who's running the country? Who's forming this national ambition? Well, I, I think it became clear to us right around the moment that Xi Jinping took leadership. If you remember, in the fall of 2012, uh, we had the opportunity for the first time to see the standing committee unveiled to the public, to the Chinese public and to the world. I had an invitation in Beijing to come see this event. It was called a Meet the Press opportunity. This was not an opportunity for the press to ask questions, but it was a chance for us to see up close who it was that was going to be running the country for the next five years and beyond, the next ten years. So when they came out on stage... The seven members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo came out, I have to say, in, in exactly the same formation as they had in the last time this had happened. They were in front of the same tableau of the Great Wall in autumn. It was on the same stage at the Great Hall of the People. 
And I, you know, it's worth pointing out they were wearing almost identical dark suits. With the exception of one of them, they were wearing identical red ties. And um, I can point out who it was that was not wearing that tie, if anybody's curious. Um, the message was very clear. The message was, after this period of great turbulence, you remember this was after the uh, downfall of Boishilai, that things had come together, that the leadership had conformed around a shared set of ideas, that they were coherent, they'd reached a consensus, and that all was well. And then Xi Jinping steps forward to give his first remarks to the nation after being um, unveiled at the head of the standing committee. And what he said startled me because he didn't use the old, essentially Marxist-Leninist Latin, you know, uh, this discussion of scientific outlook on development. There was going to be time for that later, but what he talked about that day was very accessible. And what he talked about was the great renewal of the Chinese nation. He said he was dedicating himself to the great renewal of the Chinese nation. And over the course of the next few weeks, what emerged from that was, as he described it, the Chinese dream. Now, the Chinese dream was, as he would explain over and over again, and it would filter out across the land, was the great renewal of the Chinese nation. It was the, the ambition to return China to the place that it, right, that it should hold, that they believed it rightly held in Chinese. This is a culture, after all, that was printing 400 years before Gutenberg. This is a place that controlled one-third of the world's wealth as recently as the end of the 18th century. So this was the, this was the China that he would seek to restore. As he did that, of course, it has created friction with the rest of the world. You know, the, the old principle, which I think has been a fixture of our conversations over the last, uh, certainly the last decade and, and more, the idea that China would conduct itself in its foreign affairs under the principle of hide your strength and bide your time, hide and bide, as it's known in Washington, um, that principle seems to have been exhausted to some degree. And a, a country that now orients itself around the great renewal of the Chinese nation has less use for hide and bide than it did before. And you see this very clearly today, in just literally today. If you saw the news before you came in here tonight, you might have seen that Vietnam has said that it has had another collision with a Chinese vessel. It says that a Chinese ship has rammed a, Chinese, has rammed a Vietnamese ship uh, over disputed territory in the South China Sea. But you can go across a whole range of very complicated uh, moments in the US-China relationship and in China's relationship with its neighbors that are evidence that China's new ambition in the world has put it into conflict of a certain kind. And I think we need to be prepared for more of that in the years ahead. So if we understand to some degree what the Chinese dream is in the eyes of the party, which is, after all, the renewal of the nation under the leadership of the Communist Party. I think the question we want to be asking ourselves if we're trying to understand China's internal dynamics in the years ahead is whether his people share the same dream, whether the Chinese dream, in fact, means the same thing for ordinary people in China. And I think to understand that, we need to get into some of their aspirations, some of the things that people actually care about and talk about when they get up in the morning. I think it's useful to remember, by the way, and this really forms the heart of why I got interested in this subject, that the very idea of individual aspirations at all um, didn't really deserve much attention in Chinese history. The individual was embedded in these larger forces, whether it was the family or the village or the factory. And there wasn't much 
room for the individual. If you look through, for instance, it was reflected in Chinese art. If you go back and you look at the great classical images, like the 11th century scroll by Fang Quan, which many people here will recognize, called Travelers Among Mountains and Streams. It was this gorgeous mountainscape with water moving through it. And the only people in there, the only individuals, it was a tiny, there's a little horse caravan with a single guy driving in these horses. And then you look at the equivalent, the most famous classical image in the West, the Mona Lisa, which is, after all, a full-frame portrait of a single person. You could say it was probably the first selfie before we had a name for such things. So in effect, the whole, the whole role of an individual was different. In China, even as recently as the end of the Qing Dynasty, if you were being punished in the courts, for instance, as a defendant, oftentimes there would be collective punishment. So it wasn't just the, the person who had committed a crime, but it was also the neighbors who would be punished. It would be the village who would be punished. The community leader would be punished. There was an understanding that you were not, in the end, uh, an end in, in yourself, but you were part of something much bigger. The word ambition, which is so essential to the way that I see this place, particularly contemporary China, that word itself in Chinese, ye xin, which is literally wild heart, that was a pejorative. I mean, for most of Chinese history, if you, were, if you were said to have a wild heart, if you were accused of having a wild heart, that meant that you put yourself in front of others. And it meant that you had a kind of wolfish ambition. And if you, frankly, if you were said to have a wild heart, that could be ruinous. Uh, if it could um, have negative consequences for your family. If you go back and you look at the Huainanzi, which is a collection of advice for rulers 2,000 years ago, one of the lines in the Huainanzi is, keep power out of the hands of the ambitious, just as you would keep sharp tools out of the hands of the foolish. It's a concept that has occurred to me more than once now that I live in Washington these days. <laughs> But you know, the truth was that for most of Chinese history, the dominant fact of life as an ordinary individual was conformity. It was the importance of conformity. If you'd gone to China in the 50s and 60s as an American, you probably would have read a book called, about Chairman Mao. It was called Emperor of the Blue Ants. And that's, after all, what you would encounter to some degree. That's what you expected to see. And Chinese political culture reinforced that sense of collective sacrifice and uncountable contributions of individuals. Uh, you know, for most of the sort of socialist heyday, the highest calling you could have was to be a rustless screw in the revolutionary machine. That's, that's what you were called to be. The pressure to conform reached its most destructive during the Cultural Revolution. And I just want to read, just to put it in perspective about what that really felt like, this is a physician who suffered terribly. He was sent far out to Western China. His wife committed suicide. And he was asked later, what he had learned from that experience. And he said, to survive in China, you must reveal nothing to others, or it can be used against you. Let your public self be like rice in a dinner, bland and inconspicuous. But in the China that I encountered when I got there in 2005, this made less and less sense as a way of understanding the place, as a way of trying to analyze it, and to figure out why people made the choices that they made in their lives. The beginning of that change, if we we're going to identify it, is no surprise, I think, to many of us. It was the late 1970s. It was the moment when China embarked on its economic reforms. Oftentimes when we talk about this, we talk about it as this broad effort. But in, in people's lives, often one of the words that they used to describe how it felt was songbang, which is in Chinese to literally untie or unshackle a prisoner or an animal. That's how profound the change felt 
when uh, you were suddenly released from a collective farm or collective factory environment. That was, you were, all of a sudden you were sent out on your own in a sense to decide, well, what can I do to try to make a living? How can I find a path for myself? There was, you know, this idea of being a rustless screw in the revolutionary machine seemed less useful in an age when people had to find a second job, when they had to figure out what they were going to do for a living. In fact, there was a headline that I set aside from one of the state papers. It was in Hubei, and it said, um, this was on the front page, it said, you must rely on yourself, blaze your own path, and fight. And you began to hear this change turning up in the language. I mean, even the old, the old word for ambition, ye xin, has lost some of that negative connotation to the point that today, if you go on Amazon.cn, what you'll find is that there are books for sale, including, for instance, How to Have a Wild Heart in Your Twenties. <laughs> or my favorite, which is in the parenting section, is Molding Wild Character, Nurturing a Child to Have an Untamable Personality and Wild Ambition. And you might think, okay, this is a phenomenon that's really only in the cities. This is an elite urban uh, change. Well. Uh, it's not quite true. If you go out into the countryside, you'll, you can find there's a school in the Yangtze River Delta, for instance, where the students begin every morning by reciting the following pledge. Ever since God created all things on earth, there has not been one person like me. My eyes and my ears, my brain and my soul, all are exceptional. Nobody speaks or behaves like me, no one before me, and no one will after me. I am the biggest miracle of nature." So in China today, you've got people asking themselves in one form or another, what do I want? What do I want out of my own life? What do I want for China? And how do I fit into this? And that has become, in some sense, this driving engine that is pushing, propelling China through history at this moment. I want to just talk to you a little bit about an example, one of the ways that I see this reflected in people's lives, one of the demonstrations of this new, much more... Um, this much more robust sense of entitlement, of possibility, um, of choice, is it reflected in the traditions around love and marriage. I got interested in this years ago because I met a woman who had started a company that was devoted to online dating. She ended up starting the Chinese Match.com. It's called Shiji Jiayuan. And she ended up taking it public on NASDAQ, made $77 million. So it turned out there was a market for this. But I started holding on to these online personals ads because they were, in their own way, quite revealing about what people wanted in their lives. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, that for most of Chinese history, the notion of love and marriage didn't really have much room for the individual and for desire. Basically, the village matchmaker would line people up from two families of comparable means or comparable political background, and that was enough, and off they would go. And all of a sudden, now people suddenly had this greater sense of control, of choice in their lives, and they have embraced it. And here's an example. This is an online personals ad that was placed by a woman in graduate school in the city of Wuhan. She's seeking a young man with the following qualities. No previous marriages, master's degree or more, not an only child, no smokers, no alcoholics, no gamblers, not from Wuhan. <laughs> Taller than 172 centimeters, ready for at least a year of dating before marriage, athletic, parents who are still together, annual salary over 50,000 yuan, age between 26 and 32, willing to guarantee eating four dinners at home each week, track record of at least two ex-girlfriends but no more than four, 
No Virgos, no Capricorns. So as I've tracked this phenomenon, I, very briefly, the, what I've come to understand about China's ambitions on an individual basis is that they are in three baskets. The first, I think the one that's the most apparent to us, is the pursuit of fortune. You know, this is, this is the thing that we all see when we go. And I think it's easy to be tempted into the idea that China, particularly young people today, are really driven only by this sense of very practical, pragmatic pursuit of wealth. Um, you know, China today, after all, the income gap is so large that it's now equivalent to the difference between New York and Ghana. So people have a reason to want to end up on the winning side of that. And yet I think what you discover as you spend more time in China is that the conversation that might begin on the subject of real estate or where you're going to travel, what you've acquired, it's moved. And what people have begun over the years to talk about more and more is, well, I've assembled this little nest egg. I've assembled some real estate. I've finally got some property. I've satisfied my most basic material needs. And now I've started to realize that it's not safe. What I've got is, in, is at risk. It's at risk because I don't necessarily understand who's setting policy. I don't understand who's breaking the rules. Why is it that they can break the rules? And all of a sudden, you've got this desire for information. People can no longer afford to be uninformed. And that is what I call the pursuit of truth. And you see it reflected every day on the Chinese internet, but you also see it reflected in the growth and the success, the commercial success, of independent media organizations, places like Taijing and Taixin, other places that have found that there is a market for people who want to understand how, how the country works. And they need to understand if they want to protect what it is that they have acquired. And then the last piece, and then I'll be eager to chat with Steve about this uh, or anything that's on people's minds, is what happens after they begin to answer these questions about the world around them is that they begin to ask deeper questions, questions about the nature of what it means to be a person in China today. It really is a search for meaning. You know, it's a search for what is the, the moral basis of our society now that we no longer organize ourselves in any, in any meaningful way around the content of socialism. Uh, what does it mean to be a citizen? What are my obligations to my neighbor? What are my obligations to my parents? Are we a Confucian society in the way that we've imagined ourselves to be? And that, after all, is a pursuit of faith. It's not necessarily religious, though religion is a part of it. And China today has as many Christians, more or less, as it has members of the Communist Party. But it is fundamentally, it's a search for meaning, whether that's in philosophy or literature. But it's a, it's a, it's a hunger of the spirit. And um, over the years, I've watched as my conversations with Chinese friends have evolved from real estate to what are you reading to who's your guru? Who do you believe in these days? And um, I think that we need to be alert to that, because it's a moment that is as transformative in some ways, perhaps, as the Great Awakening in the United States at the end of the 19th century. So I'll leave it there, just to say that China today is a place that is defined above all by this enormous diversity of aspirations on the individual level, and then, of course, elevated uh, by this immense sense of national ambition. Thank you very much. I think it gives you a great sense of what's, what's in this book and that you know, what, you've just gotten an overview, but each of these chapters kind of talks about precisely kind of this, this overriding theme. Tell it, as I read through the book, you know, I thought, wouldn't Chinese love to read this book? I mean, it's kind of, it's, an, it's a Westerner's view of what's going on, but again, as I said in my introduction, it gives you a lot of kind of nuance about events which they probably only, all of us 
only had a surface view of. Talk to us about how you're going to reach the Chinese market, the translation of the book, your decision not to publish it uh, through a mainland publisher. Well, one of the pleasures of the last few years of writing in China has been that we are now in touch with a Chinese audience. You know, this happened really while I was there. Stories that I would write in The New Yorker, for instance, would get translated almost instantly, crowdsourced. You know, people would divide it up, they'd translate it, and they would post it online. And that was wonderful. Partly, I, frankly, I think it was healthy. It was a form of accountability. If I got something wrong, I'd find out about it. Um, because traditionally, foreign correspondence has been a sort of extractive process. And there's something that is a little bit une- it makes me uneasy about that. I like having this kind of conversation with Chinese readers. And um, some of the stories that I wrote also were formally translated in a Chinese literary journal, for instance, which was also great and would reach a different kind of person. Some of your stories blocked? Some of them. Um, None of them have been blocked. Some of them have been, uh, were, actually there was, no, I take that back. Uh, there was uh, a story, I wrote a profile of the Dalai Lama, for instance, um, which, no surprise, was not widely available in China. Um, but, you know, when, when I started working on the book, I, because the pieces had been, had been read in China, I got interest from some Chinese publishers who said, look, we want to publish the book in Chinese. I said, well, that's great. Let's talk about it after the manuscript's done. And, and I sent it off to them. And they came back, to my surprise, with very detailed responses. And they said in one case, well, if you're going to publish this in China, you would need to produce a special version that would require cutting about a, a quarter of the contents. And here are the things that, and they went chapter by chapter and identified the problem areas. Some of them, I think, would not surprise you. You know, uh, a discussion of Ai Weiwei or uh, Chen Guangcheng, the blind lawyer uh, who's now in exile. Um, but then there were parts that I was surprised about. So, for instance, there was a discussion about the origins of China's economic reforms in which I described the contributions of different senior leaders. Um, but that was a description that did not conform necessarily to the official version of events, which tended to put greater emphasis on the role played by Deng Xiaoping. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, a detail that they said would be problematic. And, you know, in the end, I said, this is, I'm not going to publish a book that is... Um, that is an incomplete portrait of the China that I encountered and, that I, and the China that I decided in the end m- mattered in this portrait. Because you know, a decision about a book is also a decision about what to leave out. And if I had left out these elements that I thought were, were important for a Western reader to understand, and if I said to a Chinese reader, I don't think these parts matter, Ai Weiwei I don't think matters, or Chen Guangcheng I don't think matters, or Bo Xilai I don't think matters, because that was another point that they thought was problematic. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel like I was going to be rendering an honest portrait. And uh, so um, in the end, it'll be, por- it'll be published in Taiwan, and it'll be available uh, to Chinese readers uh, in all formats. What's been the response? So I'm sure plenty of people have read it in English. What's been the response from kind of mainland readers, not Taiwan, Hong Kong? From mainland readers to the book? To the book, yes. Well, I've gotten a bunch of emails, and it's, it's you know, I have to say it's very gratifying to hear from people. I... Uh, I don't want to try to um, describe it yet. I think this is still early days. I think later, let's talk about this again when I've gotten a fuller sense of it. But because, you, know, you know, to say that people are writing nice things, I don't think advances the, it doesn't advance the story much yet. Um, I should say that I am meeting with the Chinese embassy next week. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> are you going to publish the, what they requested would be deleted? I'm going to publish the, the full translation, yeah. No, no. no. In other words, one of the things which is always interesting is when they're Chinese 
language versions and English language versions, doing a side by side yeah. and seeing what the deletions are, because that tells you where the line is. But you've actually had a letter written to you which talks about that. Has that been published? Well, I wrote or an op-ed in, op in the New York but I, Times. But are you going to publish the, the Well, I, I, I suppose if I got permission from the person who sent it to me, that would be okay. I mean, it, it, I went through in the op-ed, as you may remember, and described the examples of the things that they found objectionable. Um, but no, I think you may be onto something. Maybe there's a way to, uh, to make it more available. Yeah, because that would be interesting. You're back a year. Has your perspective changed much? Well, I, you know, I wonder whether my perspective has changed more on the subject of the United States. I, I did, you know, I did move to Washington. I started work in Washington on October 1st, which you may remember was the day that the government shut down. Um, and I had spent years, you know, this is a little bit like Chinese students who go abroad often find themselves being more nationalistic when they're abroad. I'd gone abroad and I would often say, you know, okay, sure, we have this debt ceiling issue, but, you know, we have a robust democracy and things are really working well. <clears throat> and then um, seeing it up close has been a clarifying experience. And at some point I will describe, I'll, I'll probably write a piece about that process of moving from one capital to the other. I, I mean, in seriousness, I do think that the seeing China from far away has um, made me realize, really this is more about my conversations with Americans about China, it has made me realize the degree to which the narrative of China in the United States has entered, um, I think this is a, this is a, to say it's a dangerous period is overstating it. But the general street-level idea of China today is that it is a place that is probably not our friend. And this concerns me because I think that our relationship is complex in a whole variety of ways. You know, there are all kinds of obvious ways in which we are rivals. We have very different political systems, very different political values. And yet also we are integrated in ways that we, we don't have the luxury of pretending don't exist. And we're better when we are understanding each other more clearly. So that's one of the reasons why I basically go around and talk about the place in its most granular it's detail. It's what the National Committee does and it's why we appreciate what you do. What, what do you think drives the different narratives? And, and you, I think there are actually three narratives. Th among Americans, there are three narratives. There's the one expatriates living in China have, have roughly a, a similar narrative. Americans outside of Washington, and then Americans within Washington. That there's literally a different narrative within the Beltway. What do you think drives those? Well, some of it is, um, is the representation. Well, some of it is the impact we feel in our own lives. You know, if I go to Michigan, where I go every summer, have ever since I was a kid, I'll tell you that there aren't a whole lot of people in Michigan who feel as if China is our friend right now because they feel they're at a, it's at a moment of economic distress. Um, and China is, after all, the answer to a lot of those questions, rightly or wrongly. That's the answer that is provided by our political conversation in America. Um, you know, you take a look at some of the ads that run in right, congressional right. campaigns, and those are not, let's say, demonstrations of deep and, and, and nuanced understanding of China. Um, you know, there was an ad that ran a couple of years ago about, you remember this, called the, the professor, professor ad. The professor ad, you know, of course. It was, to people who don't remember, that was a room like this, and it was full of, of Chinese students, and the professor, who was this role that was supposed to be in the future, was, a, was telling the students about the decline and fall of the United States, and this is how they ended up being more or less in hoc to China. And then all the students laugh uproariously. I mean, it was a, it was a fantasy and a dark fantasy. It's, a, it's an example of a way in which I think there is a tendency for us to want to cast China in the role of a familiar opponent. Um, it is, it's not the Soviet Union. I mean, I, I think this is, and it's, and, it's, and it's not Japan on the cusp of World War II. It is its own thing. And I, I, you know, I think it's clear from reading the book. 
I don't pull punches when I talk about this place. I care about it, and I describe it accurately. I try. But I also say um, that um, this is a country that we need to we need to acknowledge in its own strange way. The lived experience of, Chi- of being Chinese and being American has never been more similar. At the same moment that our governments are finding ourselves in greater right. conflict with each other, which is perhaps the phenomenon you were, I think, yes, you but, rightly suggesting. So, a question, kind of from a national committee perspective, which is besides having people like you write books, which I think has it really reaches the the American people. Besides having people like you go out and speak. What do we do to kind of bridge this gap? What should we really be doing that we're not doing? I'm not sure it's a question of what you're not doing. I do think it's a question of, of more. I mean, I, I, I am amazed at the impact uh, that going to China has on people. You know, there is this difference when you meet somebody who's been and somebody who hasn't been. Right. And I don't mean necessarily somebody who's gone to Shanghai and has been to the Grand Hyatt and came back and said, boy, everybody I met was just fabulous. They all went to Yale. Um, <laughs> I mean, I really think that, you know, oftentimes when friends come to China, the first thing I say is, okay, you've got to go to Beijing or Shanghai or Guangzhou, but then we've got to get you to, like, Xining. You've got to go somewhere different. And that's vital because it is uh, a fuller picture of the place. So, I, I, I mean, this is a, an answer you already know, but there is literally no substitute for sending people to China. And um, it's getting easier and easier to do it. But um, I, I think, you know, as we're thinking about ways in which we can enhance American security in the long-term sense, one of the ways we can do that is by having a richer understanding of the place we're encountering. No, no question. By the way, I was, I was interested that in the book, you really didn't make this, this connection. But you were just talking about kind of China's, since the, the, the 18th Party Congress, China's ability to, to accept more friction in the relationship with its neighbors and with the United States as part of China's ambition, which is very much a Washington narrative. Mm. That is a within-the-beltway narrative. We kind of listen to it and go, huh, it's a little murky. Oh, no, you if, mean I've if, been there nine months and I've already right. gone you, native. You, you this is a bad the, sign. You look at the Diao Yudao. Yeah. You know, it's a Chinese response. You look at, you know, Vietnam. It's Chinese. It's an over-response, but they're very much being provoked. The Washington narrative is very much exactly what you, what you said. So it's an interesting, maybe you've already gone to the dark side. Well, can I turn the <laughs> tables for a second? I mean, I'm curious, what would, be the, what would be your description of the origins of the Diaoyu conflict? Not to hijack our conversation, but I am curious. If, if you see daylight between the description that is trafficked in Washington and the way yeah, that oh, should yes. be talked I, about, I, I'd I, be very I think our description, the narrative that we give on that is inaccurate, that it was the Japanese after 40 years you know, two years ago, they changed the rules that, that, that Deng Xiaoping and Tanaka had agreed upon, and that when they purchased the islands, which the Chinese called nationalized, they changed those rules and they required a Chinese response. So that everything that has happened then, we have in effect done what an NFL referee does. We have flagged the guy for retaliation as a guy who, as opposed to the guy who committed the first foul. And it's little question that we had, we, in my view, which is not shared by our government, but that we had had uh, a very weak prime minister in Noda who, who had to kind of make this offer in order to head off the governor of Tokyo purchasing the islands. And then Abe followed up with the purchase, even though the Chinese had made it quite clear to the United States and Japan that this was crossing a red line and required a response. So after you tell some from a diplomatic point of view, when you tell the Americans and the Japanese, you're crossing a dread line. After that line is crossed, you just, you just can't sit there and go, Swala, mm-hmm. You know, they had to you know, forget it. I mean, they're not going to say forget it. They're going to have to respond. But we have, we have I think, 
developed a narrative that is inconsistent with that story. And I think in Vietnam and the Philippines, it's just less clear who has taken the first step that we say it's, you know, as I mean, Secretary I, I, Hegel said when he was in Singapore the other day, it's the Chinese are being more assertive. That, that is not clear. I am struck by the degree of, of uh, mutual incomprehension when it comes to the most basic question, which is our intentions. I mean, what in the end are China's intentions? What are America's intentions in the Pacific? And I think that is... Um, it's astonishing if you think about it. If you think about the structures that are in place to try to promote this conversation, you know, we talked before we came out here, we were upstairs talking about communication. And I, I am struck by the way that in so many ways China's country is, the China, China is not the country it was 10 or 15 years ago in so many ways, and yet the political language that it uses, the way that it talks to the world, has not evolved as fast. And I don't think that it's doing itself any favors in that way. Yeah, the, the, the communication strategy which China has in place is the same one it's had in place for, for decades and is probably inappropriate to, um, to, to what China is today. Um, but I wanted, I wanted to get back to the... I turned the tables. That's a journalist. Uh -huh. That's a journalist. Here, here I was saying my job is so great because I get to ask the journalist questions. This is really, this is fun. Um, what stories didn't you have in the book that you wish that, that you, you really felt that you, you should have had it or wish that you could have had in it? I don't think that I, um, I don't think I fully accounted for what Xi Jinping believes about politics. You know, this began to unfold over the last nine months that I was there. And it has since become clear, I think, to all of us that he has an image of what the political life of China should be. And... Um, I think you know, he is, he's making a decision about the way that he is going about adopting difficult economic reform, but he's doing it also at a time in which, by any measure, political life is becoming more constrained. Um, if you talk to people in China, when I was there six weeks ago, that is the way people describe it. And you know, there are lots of interpretations. One interpretation is Deng Xiaoping said that when you're turning right, you have to put your left <laughs> turn signal on. Um, I'm waiting to see evidence of that. And um, I don't think I fully accounted for that. And uh, I think it's going to be a big story because he is a much more powerful figure than his predecessor. And he will define the political culture of China in the years ahead in a way that we're, we're still trying to reckon with, I think. Mm -hmm. Which would have been a very, I mean, I, again, I think there is a counter argument to that, which is that during this period when you know, the, 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 the reforms that they're proposing are so massive, they're really only, the only, analogy you could make to, would be to December of 1978 when Deng proposed those reforms and that the massive change that that is going to require in his mind requires that he tamp down on civil society, on media, on dissidents because it's going to be so tough. There's so many embedded constituencies that oppose this. That, that he has little choice. That would be the counter-narrative, but you don't buy that. Well, I, I'm, I'm looking for that linkage. I mean, I'm not convinced that there, is a, that there is a linkage there. I don't know why it would be. For instance, if we're talking about financial sector reform, the kind of vested interests that he is encountering there, which are significant, and I don't underestimate them at all, um, I wonder whether you know, it is a reliance on a familiar political toolbox it has worked before, and it is a risk-averse solution to go back to that. But in the meantime, it is ratcheting up pressure that on the civil society side, 
um, that may in the end be counterproductive. That's, that, that would be my, from a political strategy perspective, that would be my concern. That, you know, if you're, if you're for instance, um, you know, if you've got a middle class that is, as we've seen just in the last few weeks, that is thinking about what are the costs and benefits of the status quo for me. You know, if I'm a, a middle class family that has benefited enormously from the arrangement over the last 30 years, but now I'm worried about air pollution, for instance, or I'm worried about a chemical facility that's being built in my city, and five years ago I was not willing to demonstrate in the street because I have way too much to lose. You've started to see that there are people who now are saying, you know, I'm willing to join one of these strolling protests because it matters to me. I'm concerned about the health of my children and my grandchildren. Um, that is a, that's a political, very complicated bit of political chemistry. And I think, you know, you have to get that right. Otherwise, you can alienate the core of your constituency. But what, what would be great to have a, another chapter in the book would be kind of about the experience of she and others of his age and mm -hmm. what they went through during the Cultural Revolution, and in his case, from before the Cultural Revolution, that that experience and how that defines the way he thinks about stability and how we, we have never experienced that level of chaos. And we can never kind of stand in the shoes of the Chinese leadership who has, they're all my age. They've all been through the Cultural Revolution. They all were pretty much had unbelievable, extraordinary experiences during that time, and therefore are making decisions which we don't need to agree with, but we need to understand. It, kind of, it would be wonderful if, if a book of this quality would actually talk about the experiences of people of that age and how that affects the way they think about these decisions. I'll tell you, I mean, you, you, you identify an, a gap in what is possible as a writer in China today, as a foreigner. And this is interesting because, you know, I now live in a country, I now live in a city, especially, where the problem is not too little access to power, <laughs> it's too much. I mean, this is constantly, you're being inundated with competing narratives of, of heroic activity and uh, triumph over adversity and please come write about me. Um, in, in Beijing, I lived there for eight years and, and, and had, you know, I was a fully accredited correspondent for a couple of the big news organizations there, first for the Chicago Tribune and then for the New Yorker magazine. And there have been so many people who've gone abroad and come back who are senior members of the party that it's surprising to me that nobody's figured out that, you know, we need to find people within our own ranks who can tell our story. Because what you described... I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily endorse the fact that going through chaos leads to certain policy decisions. I think that's an interesting question I'd love to explore. But the way to explore it is to have a meaningful you know, conversation. And you know, in the end of the 1980s, correspondents, foreign correspondents went to a cocktail party with members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. I mean, think about that as a, as a Westerner going to China. You know, that today is, it's, it's impossible. I mean, we have no access to the people who are running the country, and I think that is, in the end, to the detriment of China's ability to make its case. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've always said, I say it publicly, I say it privately, is to have a Chinese leader talk about his experience to a Western journalist, talk about it, have it filmed about their experience growing up, and how that affects their thinking today would be, would be important. I mean, I always think about my experience kind of protesting the war in Vietnam, which was nothing compared to the Cultural Revolution. But for me, it was the defining kind of event of my life. And it's defined the way I think about what the United States foreign policy should be. Mm -hmm. And it was minor compared to a Chinese leader's experience in the Cultural Revolution. So I can only imagine what that chaos does to the decisions that they make 
every day. I would also say, you know, that people all across the country went through that chaos as well. And, you know, in a sense, accounting for their attitudes is, you know, one of the things that's interesting. So how do you account for their attitudes? And, and can you describe them with one broad brush? Probably not. I mean, I think it's now reached to the point. One of the things that I would love to know more about, Sinhua News Agency has an enormous and very sophisticated polling apparatus. You know, they poll constantly. They're constantly surveying the public. And um, knowing what they actually find out about people, I think, would be really interesting. That would be another good chapter for volume two. How do you think that tomorrow we have a, a, a tragic anniversary? How do you think that's affected the way Chinese think about their future? I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, in some ways, Tiananmen, um, the crackdown at Tiananmen, the protests that, that defined that incredible spring really got me interested in China. That's what, that's what got me there. Um, I, uh, I went to college and started taking a class on contemporary Chinese politics. I had no background in China. Rod McFarquhar, who's a great, uh, great uh, sinologist, great China expert, was teaching a class all on the subject of the 1989 demonstrations. Hmm. And what you discovered, of course, was that it was the origin. I mean, it goes all the way back to the origins of Chinese political culture, and then you followed it forward. And um, the drama of that moment, the tragedy of that moment, um, that drew me in, and that's, I've been going ever since. I think. Um, you know, I think, what did the impact have on people? I mean, it's, again, it's, I'll, I'll just pick one type of person because I think that's the way I feel comfortable talking about China. I had some um, time a couple of years ago right on the anniversary itself. I was at Stanford, and I arranged to meet with a young Chinese student who was in graduate school in the United States. And I said, uh, what does this anniversary mean to you? And, you know, I think sometimes we imagine that Chinese students today have no knowledge of 1989, and some of them certainly don't. You see it whenever journalists go and ask them, have you seen this photo before of the tank man? And there are always kids who have no idea what they're looking at, or they think it's street theater, as some of them described it once in a documentary, um, or they think it's a military parade. This guy knew what he was looking at, and he had reached a judgment about it, which is that he had decided that if the, he admired the students, he said they were courageous, I admire what this guy has done, but I think if he had succeeded, I wouldn't be sitting at Stanford today. That's what he believed. He said, you know, China would have been disrupted from its course of development, and um, none of the gains that we have today would have been possible. I'm not prepared to endorse that, that description. I'm not sure that he's right. I don't think we have a counterfactual to, to, to examine, to, to test it. But what is impressive to me is the degree to which young people have been have been raised to believe that. And we're seeing this play out today in terms of how this commemoration is being marked or not marked in China today. And that image, if you ask people in the United States what is their image of China, that would probably be the, the majority of Americans. That would be the image as opposed to that in the course of my lifetime dealing with China, I've seen people who had no electricity, no running water, you know, no lights at night, you know, teaching themselves to read, and now we're worth, you know, the, the millions, hundreds of millions, and are doing extraordinary philanthropy. You but know, but that I, could be a, an image, but it's not. It's well, the I, image of, and, and the Chinese friends, of course, say the image is wrong. The, the tank didn't run them over. I would say a couple of things. One, I'm, I'm sensitive to both. There's, there's, two, there's two extreme images of China. One is the tank man, and the other is, and I say this with some sensitivity, the skyline. 
you know, and we see this, we joke about it as people who write about China. We say, you know, if you have the skyline image, are you suggesting a certain thing about the country? Are you adopting an image? And it is very hard to capture the complexity of the place without putting a dragon on the cover. Um, but, you know, in some sense, and this is the kind of thing that makes, it doesn't make any, this doesn't register with anybody but the author in this case. But, you know, what we said was we need the skyline because that is a fact of life in China today. But we also need a person, and preferably a person in uniform, because that's a part of life in China today. And so a terrific photographer named Sim Chi Yin went out with those vague instructions and managed to find exactly that. And for that, I'm very grateful. I had promised that I would open the floor to questions, and I realize I have exceeded. As Evan and I said before we came out here, we could have this conversation for hours and hours. But let me open the floor to, um, you know, to questions. We have a lady here. Hi. Wait, one. Uh, there's a. There's a. Please identify yourself and. Uh, Hello. Hi. My name is Claire, and then uh, Mr. Osnos and Mr. Allens. Uh, my question would be. Right now, you see that the China right now is in the age of ambition, and then that's we've witnessed in the past few years that China has been uh, acting more aggressively and more expressively as well from a top-down approach, politically, militarily, economically, and also from a bottom-up approach, the middle class and saying they're expressive of their ambitions and stuff. So my question will be, do you think that the Chinese right now are entering also an age of security and confidence, or they're actually acting not very securely about themselves and also about, the, about China itself? It's a great question. I mean, I, I actually would tell you that I think oftentimes China's posture to the rest of the world derives most from a sense of weakness, not of strength. Um, and, you know, it was best put by our friend Susan Shirk, who's called it a fragile superpower. And in so many ways, that description endures today. And I, my goal is to try to account for both sides of that. I think, you know, China does have this new, more muscular position in its diplomacy. I, I, I would argue that that's the case. I'm not saying that it's necessarily assertive in the classic term of art way. But I do think there's no question that it is now pursuing claims that it didn't feel ready to pursue a few years ago. Um, and on an individual basis, I actually think that people, the thing people talk to me about more than anything else is a feeling of insecurity in society. You know, and you might have people who feel confident in ways that they haven't before, and that's, that can be exciting to spend time with people like that who have suddenly figured out, in a sense, their new sense of possibility. But you talk to people, and they will talk to you a lot about a feeling that they don't have anchuengan, you know, this sense of security in their lives. And then that's oftentimes what they want more than anything else, I think. Uh, the Chinese are not pursuing claims that they formerly did not pursue. They're able to pursue them in a different way. But China is not asserting new claims. That all of these claims, whether it's the Nine Dash Line, the Diao Yudao, you know, Scarborough, these are claims that China has asserted forever. And that, again, this is not, it's a long conversation, but it was the, a requirement of the law of the sea in 2009 that these claims be filed, that required the Vietnamese, the Filipinos, and everybody else to file these claims. And then when you file a claim in international law, you have to assert that claim. And that's been part of it. It's not, I think it's not can... a more, it's China, of course, has a stronger military. But I don't, I think we need to, you know, 
be careful in saying that China is asserting claims that it previously didn't assert. All of these, China will say, has been part of China forever, and they have lots of records showing they've previously asserted them. I would say that, for instance, if you look at some of the decisions that they've made about the timing of declaring an air defense identification zone or the decision to move an oil rig into this territory in Vietnam, I, I would say that there is a there are there have been decisions that have been made that have not shirked away, that have not uh, avoided confrontation, even if they know that it might produce well, Certainly, the declaration of an ADIZ could have been done better. But as the Chinese often point out, when we declared our ADIZ, we didn't consult with anybody. Well, we did consult with our neighbors, would be the American government response. Now I'm really being in Washington too long. That, that's right. But, but it, it's... it's <laughs> I think the America, we wanted the, and I, I by, by the way, have said to the Chinese, it would have made <coughs> sense. No one is going to question your right to assert an ADIZ, but it would have been much better under the Xinxindaguoguanxi if you kind of gave the United States government more than 30 minutes notice. It doesn't seem, you know, right. a, 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 good way, a good way to start. So that part I agree with. Other questions? Let's go over here. Hello, my name is David, and uh, I just find it just incredibly fascinating to see this tremendous growth in Christianity in China. And I say that in light of two things. One is the decline in the West of mainline Christianity, coupled with the fact that China has had the spiritual tradition of Buddhism and Taoism. And could you talk a little bit further about this explosion in Christianity and the um, opening of churches throughout the country and so forth? Yeah, it's been a remarkable thing to watch over the last decade. I mean, there has been... I should say there is this constant push and pull because there are moments of openness and then moments of uh, crackdown. I mean, just in the last month, you've seen that, for instance, in Zhejiang province, there has been a couple of major church communities. I shouldn't say a couple. I don't know exactly how many. Um, house churches, informal, non-registered churches that have been closed. Um, torn down. Torn down. Uh, the steeple was knocked down in Wenzhou. It was a very sort of dramatic gesture. So, And yet, at the same time, beneath that, I think you would generally describe the period of the last eight to ten years um, as a period in which there is more opportunity for faith communities um, to organize, to become a little bit more public. Um, I've followed a, couple, a, I followed a couple of churches that have been extraordinarily public in the way that they've gone about their activities. They called up the local PSB, the Public Security Bureau, and said, we're going to have 200, 300 people on Saturday, on Sunday, for a service, just so you know. And then they would rent out a space and they would do it. Um, this is one of the hard things, though, is to pick a point and say, this is the problem of what I call the problem of proportions in China, which is on any given day, you can say that things are opening up or you can say things are clamping down. I, I should say on Christianity, one interesting fact, particularly, I think, um, in America, is that you know this is not, and this is, I don't mean to disparage the work of American churches that are active in China, but this is becoming a Chinese phenomenon. And in a sense, the idea that this is Americans exporting religion to China doesn't accurately describe it. This is really, um, these are Chinese communities led in many ways by Chinese ideas. Uh, Bob. I think Bob had a question. Bob, you have a question? Uh, it, it seems to me that the Chinese Closer. government is... Uh, Closer. Hold your mic. Closer. Uh, it seems to me that the Chinese government is attacking its own legal profession more than it has in the past, and uh, not only the criminals, but the profession itself in, in, very, in many, many cases. And that they must know that this gives a very bad impression to a world that is trying to uh, be a, a world of law. Uh, 
Is it true that they are pers persecuting them more, or is it just that we know more? No, I think they are persecuting them more. I think we should be honest about the state of legal reform efforts and the possibility of being um, of using the courts. Uh, I, I, you know, a number of activists in China and then also practitioners in the West who have gone about legal reform efforts in China believe that we have been set back by a number of years. Um, things were were on a much better trajectory five or six or seven years ago than they are today. So I think that's worth describing accurately. Um, as to whether they care that they're producing a negative impression, I've come to the conclusion over the last couple of years that they care a lot less than we thought. Um, I don't think that they believe in the end that that matters all that much. They don't think that changes. If we're talking they, I'm talking, I'm generalizing about Chinese leadership. But I think there's a judgment that in the end, the reason why they're being tough on lawyers is because they believe there's a political risk posed by aggressive, organized legal activity. Um, and, and that, in the end, trumps whatever negative reputational effect there is abroad. OK, I think this is the last go back. I, can, I can't see who it is. But. <laughs> You'll hear. <laughs> uh, well, uh, my name is Houdi. Thank you very much for sharing your insights about uh, the, uh, this generation in the ever-changing China. So your, the title of your book reminds me of a Chinese saying, when you are warm and not hungry, you think of ambitions, mm. you think of desires. I think that's why now it's a term for China, which means kind of, which leads me to think chasing fortune, shoes and face can be used to describe anyone or any people of a country when the people are warm and not hungry. So my question is, what do you think is the end outcome that the Chinese people are looking for when they are in this pursuit of fortune or truth or faith? Is that for this unique self-identity, that the miracle of the world, as you shared in a slogan? Or is that, is that for happiness? Happiness hasn't really been something discussed in China much. Or is that, being, is that um, validation from the society or the parents? Thank you. I mean, it's a, an eloquent question. And I can tell you that I think the, the answer um, has come clear to me over the course of the last few years, which is fundamentally, people are looking for dignity in their lives. And they define it in lots of different ways. For some people, dignity is about financial security that they've never had. And for other people, dignity is a political concept. And it is about the right to form opinions and express them. And for other people, dignity is about the ability to choose who you believe in and what the moral principles are that animate your life. And for them, the absence of that is an undignified existence. But what I find so fascinating about this period is that people, you know, the children of parents who never imagined that they were entitled to that kind of dignity, I think now can't imagine a world without it. And that's a fundamental fact about China today and, and one that um, uh, on some level, that is, that's the source of optimism for me. The book is for sale outside. It is a must read. And Evan has agreed to autograph copies which are purchased here. But please join me in thanking him for an absolutely wonderful hour. Thank you very much. Thanks. Fabulous. I enjoyed that. It was great.